But I'm Alfred Hitchcock. I am. I can prove it. Sure, sure. Everybody is. I am. I insist. An astounding hoax. He carried off the impersonation brilliantly, except for one thing. Bubble gum in his pocket, indeed. Alfred Hitchcock wouldn't be caught dead with a bubble gum in his pocket. Good evening. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette. Yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I'm your host, Zach Eastman, and I quickly want to address the uh, lactic, lack of consistency that uh, has been going on with the release of the shows and the articles. Uh, the fact is, life gets in the way, and this is not um, uh, a full-time gig yet. Hopefully, by the time you have heard this episode, a plan will already be in place in terms of how to create more consistency in terms of how the uh, episodes are released. Uh, but I do want to thank everybody who has been listening, has been reading the articles, has been subscribing to Real Nerds Podcast just to listen to it, um, and also to uh, the people who have been encouraging me to keep going with this little crazy adventure. Uh, and I want to thank last episode's guest, James Hart, for taking time out of his busy parenting schedule to talk Rebecca. It's a fun and jovial discussion, and I hope you all enjoy it. Uh, and I, as always, want to thank Brad Haig for his continued efforts on all things Shamley and seeing that these discussions and essays that I've been writing for the website in companionship um, have a home on the Internet because of him. So uh, thank you, Brad, for everything that you do. And now that the old business has been addressed, we shall press forward by going backward. Uh, up to now, we've been covering films and elements of Hitchcock by going uh, into more of his American work. Uh, undeniably, these are the films we remember him primarily for, from Psycho to Rear Window to even Rope. Um, but we have a, we haven't had an opportunity to dive into the early years of Hitchcock when he was still in Britain making films for Gamal British Picture Corporation and Gainsborough Pictures, its sister company. Uh, for those were the homes for Hitchcock when he started hired by the company to serve as, to serve as an assistant director. Um, and, uh, prior to this, he was working with famous Lasky players in London, uh, making title cards. Um, uh, famous Lasky players, by the way, uh, was a production arm that later became Paramount Pictures. Uh, and they had a London division and that's where he got to, got his start. He then moves on to Gainsborough and Gamma British Co Picture Corporation. Eventually he works up the ladder to the point where they ask him to direct The Pleasure Garden in 1925. Uh, the film is a bit of a melodrama. It's not hailed, um, as anything, uh, is, say, in his later career. Uh, but it led to his second film, The Mountain Eagle, uh, which is now lost to time. Again, if anybody's found it, please contact me or the British Film Institute. Um, uh, but all these ups and downs, trials and tribulations lead to the creation of The Lodger, released in 1926, which is the first true Hitchcock picture. And it sets himself up as the creme de la creme of British cinema and the prime example uh, that the UK can point to in terms of their director uh, uh, to prove that the British uh, film industry has artistry to it to contribute to the art form. Um, 
Uh, this led to many films well into 1939 when he made uh, films that audiences in Britain and eventually in America adored. Uh, they were both able to see them on either side of the pond. He made these films up until 1939, where he then was whisked away uh, across the channel to work for Crazy David Oselznik. Um, uh, and he left a legacy of British film that is undeniably a foundation for a lot of things we see today, uh, not just from film in general, but also particularly in British films. The film he made uh, before he left for uh, America was Jamaica Inn uh, with Charles Lawton from 1939. Um, it's it's a film that we will discuss eventually because it, along with a couple of other films in Hitchcock's oeuvre, are films where he had plenty of difficulties on set uh, and they thus led to the pictures being not the best, uh, we'll just say, if I'm going to be kind about it. Uh, but the film he made before it uh, for Gainsborough and British Gamo is also the last film he made for that company before he went to make Jamaica in and then went off to do Rebecca. Uh, and it's a film that caps off a wonderful legacy of contributions to the British film industry, to Hitchcock's career and to the world of cinema at large. Um, he left behind a legacy such as the original version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, which was one of the first English was the first English speaking role for Peter Lorre. We have The Thirty Nine Steps with Robert Donat, a classic film that I highly recommend. Uh, you have Blackmail, you have Sabotage, and many others. But if he was going to leave, though, you should go with a smile and a bang. And those are the key ingredients in a film that centers around trying to find a missing old lady on a train heading to uh, heading to London from Bandrika while not realizing the sinister doings that lie beneath her disappearance. I speak, of course, of The Lady Vanishes. Here to discuss this hilarious and thrilling picture is a talented writer and journalist who has been working with the Real Nerds podcast for three years and has contributed some of the most thoughtful observations about entertainment uh, and the industry around it today, um, bringing her unique perspective to uh, different genres and aspects of film that we don't always see. Um, she's also an admitted novice to Hitchcock, so but she has vast knowledge and understanding about how film works and appreciation for all things UK. So that would be a, uh, an undoubted um, displeasure if we didn't get her on on here to talk about The Lady Vanishes, um, let alone any other film that he made in the British period, but this one especially. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest, Corinne Westman. Good evening, all. Ooh, I, I like it. Y'all. Y'all. No, that's I said all. Oh, you said all? Yeah. Oh, you're no fun. Good evening, all. Y'all. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Corinne. For, thank you for Corinne for coming on board to talk a little bit of Hitchcock with me. Sure. Thanks for having me on. So I sent the questionnaire to you as I sent it to everybody who's been uh, coming on to the show. Um, uh, but you also told me up front that you're not a huge in Hitchcock watcher, which is fine because some of our guests weren't until recently. Um, yes, but thanks to your uh, Shamley silhouette, I watched Notorious. <laughs> oh, really? Which was awesome. Yeah, loved it a lot. Although, you know, it is. I don't. I don't know what. I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's <laughs> so all maybe good. Maybe it would have been more fun if I hadn't had some stuff spoiled for me. Yeah, it's whatever. Hey, it's you know I what? I gotta watch it. So. I do apologize on behalf of myself and Ryan because we would not want to spoil a Cary Grant movie for anybody because that's it is old. So it, 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 it's it's old, but. 
it can be it can feel new again yeah. you know it can feel new again but it was definitely one of those movies that i'm like i hate my parents for never making me sit down and watch this movie because <laughs> it was just such fun so a little bit of background for the listeners who may not be real nerds podcast full-time listeners which mm-hmm. if you aren't i don't blame you um but uh uh, but you do a segment on the show called Catching the Classics with Corinne. Yes. Uh, in addition to all the other things you've been writing for the site and stuff. Um, and the basic pitch of Catching the Classics is that you're watching the films that everyone's told you you should have seen but haven't yet. Yes. Um, which is not a bad thing at all whatsoever. I think some of the titles you've done in the past have thrown us off. But once we started you know, listening to each segment, I think we've realized like how many we may have seen or not seen. Uh, like the last one uh, that I haven't seen was Dr. Shivago. I still haven't seen it yet. Um, and thanks to your review, I'm going to watch it now. Um, so with all that in mind and you telling me that you're upset with your parents, that you didn't get to watch notorious as a kid, which, you know, I mean, parents have interesting tastes. So, I mean, you know. my mom made me sit down and watch rear window. So, which was my first Hitchcock movie. Well, I mean... You, our, so I don't know why she couldn't have made me sit down and watch Notorious. Mothers love Jimmy Stewart. Uh, they, they say they like Cary Grant, but they really love the Jimster. That's what I call myself, the Jimster. It's a terrible name. Um, so basically, though, with all that in mind, um, how do you get introduced to Hitchcock uh, in terms of understanding how cinema works? Because, like, it's easy to watch a film at an early age but not necessarily grasp onto it. Like, when's the first time you start seeing Hitchcock and the things he does as a filmmaker, would you say? Um, well, like I said, the first one I saw was Rear Window. And you, I, I haven't seen it since then, so I can't really – I can only speak from what I remember of it. But, yeah, you definitely – just like with this movie, there's definitely the question of like what's going on and who can you trust and you know is what you saw on screen really reliable? Is that what's really happening? Like there's always this kind of feeling that maybe you as the audience understand more than the characters, mm-hmm. and then sometimes it's the opposite where the characters understand more than you. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely always like tension in a Hitchcock movie, I guess. Yeah, it's well, he is the master of suspense, but there is all. But no, you're right because there is the the one thing that we've talked about um, primarily in the Rear Window episode, but also haven't elaborated on it in full is um, because Hitchcock uses a point of view uh perspective in most of his films it does put you as a viewer in the position to feel as confused as they are even if they may have more information than you from the get-go mm-hmm. like you're still put in their seat of confusion and in the case of the lady vanishes we're dealing with margaret norwood's um confusion we're put right in her shoes to the point where we see the kaleidoscope vision of her dizziness right. um and we're put in the position of her like we there's not a ton of POV shots, but they're like in terms of like it's the whole thing's not POV, mm-hmm. but there's enough there to put us in her shoes directly. Right. And of course, we as the audience have a little bit more information than her for the first like 25 minutes because we do see the scene where, um, you know, the old lady is listening to the music mm-hmm. and there's some, you know, nefarious stuff going on that i won't talk about just yet because <laughs> we're not in spoiler territory but you definitely 
feel like you know something is going on, something sinister, whereas the characters don't know that yet. Yeah. No, so it, it's it's basically the bomb under the table. Yep. I'm going to show you the bomb. I'm going to show you going it off. I'm going to show, I'm I'm going to show you ticking, show you it ticking. Mhm. And then I'm going to show you all the people around you not realizing that there's a bomb under the table. Um, And that happens twice in this movie where we get scenes of where the audience knows something that not all the characters do. Yeah, exactly. And you're kind of just waiting for a thing to happen. Yeah. Um, I will say in the scheme of presenting that information to us and the ticking time bomb of it all, he's good at uh, it, it. it, it it all goes back to the whole MacGuffin of the thing is just like, well, what's the, what's the tune? What does the tune mean? What does it mean? And the truth is it means nothing. It, that's not the point of it. The point is that she disappears. The point is we have to find her. Right. But and the but, point is that the characters care. Yeah. But it's, it's not really important to us except that they care about it. Yeah. Which is the power of the MacGuffin, which is the, the classic tool that Hitchcock uses. Mm-hmm. Um, this may be a point in the episode where I uh, play you the clip where Hitchcock talks about the MacGuffin so that you, the listener, can have a better understanding of the MacGuffin via Hitchcock's crazy humor. Uh, in your films, and one of them is, uh, is a MacGuffin. Can you explain what a MacGuffin yes, is? Yes, a MacGuffin you see in most films about spies. It is a thing that the spies are after. In the days of Roger Kipling, it would be the plans of the fort on the Khyber Pass. Mm-hmm. It would be the plans of an airplane engine and the plans uh, of an atom bomb, anything you like. It's always called the thing that the characters on the screen worry about, but the audience don't care. Mm -hmm. And someone asks, what is a MacGuffin? And it's described in a scene in an English train going to Scotland and one man says to the other opposite him, he said, what's that package above your head there? And the other man said, oh, that, that's a MacGuffin. He said, well, what is a MacGuffin? He said, well, it's an apparatus for trapping lions in the Scottish Highlands. The man said, but there are no lions in the Scottish Highlands. He said, then that's no MacGuffin. <laughs> Uh, thank you for clearing that up for us. Oh. So, yeah, the MacGuffin is the thing that the characters care about and by by, con- by vicariously we care about because we care about the characters. Right. Um, it's kind of vague. And- yeah, it's, it, it doesn't mean anything. Like, it, North by Northwest has one of my favorites, which is just like, it's government secrets, and then they just move on. Um, and uh, and Rear Windows one of the, has one of the best ones in the respect that the whole – uh, character of Raymond Burr is a MacGuffin because his his situation doesn't matter. The murder across the way doesn't matter. The thing that matters is that James Stewart doesn't want to marry Grace Kelly. So that's basically the point of Rear Window. And in the case of Lady Vanishes, it's not about the government secrets or the shootout at the end. Spoilers. Um, I might cut that. Um, the point is, is that the importance of the film is about trying to find out where did the woman go and who took her. And those or was she even there? At yeah, all? was she even there at all? And we will get to that here um, in a little bit. But I did want to ask you one more question in the regards of listening to um, or watching classic films um, through a more modern lens. Um, 
you've uh some of the catching the classics that you've done on older films have been interesting because like me you watch a lot a lot more older golden age hollywood stuff um yeah hey your mom did a good thing my mom yeah you're on the movie your mom your mom did a good thing although there were some that she uh listed that i did not approve of um but you know you know what those ones are Mm um i uh um but i will say that your take on it is a little bit more frank and a little bit more honest and and i know you'll have some of that with us today um but do you do you have a hard time watching some of the older films within the context of today or does it is it even an issue in your mind um it's a question that i haven't asked a lot of guests yet but because you do the takes that you do i'm curious like is there a level of uh I guess discomfort's not the word. Is it more of just like, is, is it hard sometimes to watch some of those films with some of the things that are laid in about that are of the time? Um, yeah, I guess there's like maybe two things that can kind of ruin a movie before you even watch it. And one of that is that, you know, the time period it was made and kind of the social things that are going on at the time mm-hmm. and how well they've dated. So maybe there's some you know, jokes in there or characters or, you know, things that don't age well. Like, um, oh, what is it? Is it 16 Candles that has the... <laughs> 16 Candles has a or, lot. Or Where Breakfast do you... at Tiffany's. You know, oh, Breakfast at Tiffany's has the worst. Yeah. One of the worst things ever. It tends to be more sexist and racist things. But, I mean, you do have things like where they kind of dance around homosexuality and uh, or, you know, they're just not very... You know, accepting or they can't handle those kinds of things very well and they right. call each other by horrible insults and things of that nature but but that's the one thing is that the movie is already dating itself based on its language and how it treats its characters okay and then the other thing is just the cultural um environment today where you have you know pop culture and a lot of things are just kind of well known like so you know such as the godfather you know the whole baptism shootout at the end it's like well there that that ending is ruined for me seven was ruined for me yeah um you know green mile like pretty much anything i've watched jurassic park was another big one Mm -hmm. it's like okay a lot of the tension is gone because i already know how it ends so so the so our 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 very much pop culture addicted society which is not a bad thing. No. It's not a What I'm saying is is that those reputations are now uh so preceding the film that they can't that those expectations can't be met. Right. Um so I guess within that though, uh you saw the lady vanishes you told me in high school. Yeah. So thereabouts. But you had no expectation before watching the lady vanishes even back then or even rewatching it recently i know if i knew when i watched it that it was a hitchcock movie so it was one of those things you kind of just find out later so it's but Maybe. It's, it was how it was with to catch a thief mm, really I like to catch a thief <laughs> sorry <laughs> it's boring. Movie, you know it's it's a wonderful film about how cary grant is secretly george clooney it's, it's wonderful well, ryan and i think that george clooney should play older Cary Grant in a movie somehow. I'd be down for that. I, I'd totally be down for that. Um, I'd want him to team up with Cliff Booth from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and then they can steal some money from Andy Garcia again somehow. I don't care how they do it. Um, but yeah, I just mixed three just... different movies at once. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so 
but so you had no expectation with the lady vanishes whatsoever. Like you, there was nothing yeah. in your mind. Was it just one of those things that you just found at the library on a whim or? Um, I think like I was telling you earlier, I think I just stumbled on it when it was like on Turner classic movies or something. Like I must've just been watching it and maybe I saw like, Oh, it was a Hitchcock movie. So I know, you know, obviously the name Hitchcock gets thrown around a lot and, you always have like a, a lot of expectations. It, my and name it gets get, thrown around a lot like that. My name gets thrown around a lot because I can't be thrown around a lot. I don't know if you know this, Corinne. I'm very fat. You're also very dead. <laughs> yes. I, I, how is this happening? Uh, I'm talking through the. No, nobody's met, by the way, uh, and I'll post a picture on Instagram. But uh, little Aww. hitch, little hitch, uh, <laughs> which Brad, little hitch, which Brad got for me, and no, not little hitch like Will Smith's sidekick in the movie Hitch. Talk That'd about little awesome. Hitchcock. Um, so that's how he's speaking, guys. Whenever that dumb imitation comes out, it's because it's coming out of an action figure that's sealed in the box because I'm somehow some goofy 30-year-old collector. Yeah, I should probably just take it out of the package and play with it. It'd be so much fun. I don't know what kind of game I'd play with the with, <laughs> with that action figure. That just, like, I don't have an Alfred Hitchcock action playset of any kind. <laughs> like You can get some, like, Star Wars action figures and have him direct a Star Wars movie. That would be both wonderful and somehow also piss George Lucas off. So maybe I'll do that now. <laughs> Oh, uh, you know what I'll do? I'll have him make a Power Ranger movie. I want to know what a Power Ranger movie about Alfred Hitchcock would look like. I want to see that movie. Okay, Alfred Hitchcock's Power Rangers coming soon. <laughs> um, but we're not here to talk about the Power Rangers. We're here to talk about the Lady Vanishes. Um, so it's uh, based on a uh, novel mm-hmm. called The Wheel Spins by Eltha, uh, Ethel Lena White. Um, now... You know a little bit more about the novel end of things. Um, uh, so, But this is a novel that kind of has uh, – all the basic plot is there, but it doesn't have all the essential characters that we'll meet in our breakdown. Right. There are some characters that the script writers for this movie took out. There were some that they added in that are in the movie and that are not in the novel. Mm-hmm. And then the screenplay goes like another 15 minutes after where the novel would have ended. Mm. Okay. Which we'll talk about more later in spoilers. But yeah, like these, like the core of like this conflict of, you know, the lady, um, our kind of POV character for the first half, who's played by Mar- Margaret Lockwood. Margaret Lockwood, yes. Yeah. Um, her, the character's name is Iris Henderson. Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of question of, okay, so there's this lady on the train with her who's being nice. And Margaret, I think in the novel, she gets sunstroke. And so she's kind of this unreliable narrator or at least POV character. And so we're not really sure, like, did she just make up this lady or did the lady disappear? And so there are different little things that kind of lead you one way or the other. Very similar to Rear Window in that way. Yeah. As you're watching it, you're kind of going back and forth like, okay, maybe he did it. Maybe he didn't. And this one, you're like, okay, maybe she wasn't there. Oh, maybe she was. And somebody stole her. Yeah. Now, I like the comparison to Weir Window because the whole time I'm just like, Jimmy Stewart's asleep half the time and he, Raymond Burr's doing anything. How do I know that Jimmy Stewart's not lying? Except for the fact that I know because it's that movie. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, The Lady Vanishes, though, um, coming from that no- source novel, uh, was originally going to be called The Lost Lady, and Irish director Roy William Neal was going to be uh, directing it um, as assigned by producer Edward Black. Um and uh, that didn't work out. And Hitchcock uh, wasn't able to come up with a property to direct that he could uh, finish his contract with the Gamow British Company and Black. Uh, so 
when Black offered it to him, he accepted it. Um, and they made some changes to tighten up the opening and the ending of the story. Uh, but the script that was originally uh, written out for the Roy William Neal version didn't change much. So basically, Hitchcock kind of tweaked around with the beginning and the end um, for his version. But the original script uh, was fairly much unchanged. Uh, the screenplay was by Sidney Gillett and uh, Gillette, yes, and Frank Land- Launder. Um, with continuity by Alma Revel, uh, who was Alfred Hitchcock's wife. And we'll talk a little bit more about her in future episodes. And in fact, I want to do a full episode dedicated to her because that's, that's, that's the least that she deserves for the, the amount of stuff that she brought to cinematic legacy. Um, but this is one of the many films where she's credited on something for just one particular job. But in actuality, she did everything. Uh, starting as far back as the early Gaumont British period where Hitchcock was uh, just an assistant director and even as far back as when he was working at Famous Lasky Players, um, they had met um, and they worked together so tightly from the from the very moment that he started with the pleasant with the pleasure garden that it was just a uh, there was a. Uh, friends making a movie mentality about it where they just everybody relied on each other to make these small films that then blew up into something bigger um and she was a big contributor to that amongst other things she was one of the best editors in the world uh she she edited down to the frame um and so it's amazing to see that um there there is not a lot mentioned about her but she does do the continuity on this film. I'm sure more than likely she did 500 other things on that set. So, you know, once again, another pioneer in uh, filmmaking uh, who was a woman that is completely forgotten but by most people. Um, and then, uh, but that's basically it. We got, we don't change much from an original script. So it's not the usual motive for Hitchcock where he kind of has other people come in at his discretion and doing stuff. So this is early Hitchcock. He's kind of like working things out. Right. And it sounds like the screen. Yeah. Like you said, the script was already written before Hitchcock came aboard. Mm -hmm. So this, yeah, this was a project that was kind of already set up. Yeah. Like screenplay, everything already written. The writers were already on, or what did he call them? Constructionists. Yeah. Constructionists. (laughs) Um, It's a, it's, it's, it, it he kind of looked at everything in a technical sense and like there was a blueprint to how to make a movie um basically everything was so tightly figured out in pre-production that all you had to do was point and shoot because all the instructions were there um but if you look at the production of psycho though you'll prove that you do need hitchcock there because there's something he understands to it and explains to it that not even a storyboard can tell you sometimes um but um uh, there was uh, the film was shot in Islington Studios and Shepherd's Bush and on location in Hampshire, uh, including at Longmore Military Camp. And it was the first to be uh, made under an agreement between Gamma British and MGM. Um, and that set at Islington Studios was 90 feet long. Yep, 90 feet long. And that I got to tell you, when we when you watch the film, um you're kind of amazed by the scale and scope. Now today we look at it and we think, well, it's, it's antiquated. It's, you know, not, not as sophisticated, but I got to tell you that opening shot that we'll get, that we'll talk about in a second. 
I prefer that visually to half the CGI stuff I see today. Oh, and like I, the miniatures? Yeah, and I know that sounds very pretentious, but it's just kind of like there's something about the craft to it that I enjoy. I didn't realize that was a miniature the first time I watched it this week. Yeah, and then you, you but you look back and you're just like, nope, I can see it. That car is right. going through like it's like a toy car. This was such a low-budget movie that I think the X, like, I don't want to spoil too much here. Yeah. The sequence at the end of the movie when there's like some nonsense going on outside the train, mm-hmm. I think that's like the only part that they didn't shoot in the studio. Right. Everything else was either in the studio or done with like miniatures. Yeah. And it's. Or um, projection or like back. What do they call that? It's like rear projection. Rear projection. Which is or... something that Hitchcock does a lot. He uses it a lot in many other films. Like it, Almost every one of his films has some form of rear projection of it mm-hmm. in it at some point. He has a lot of driving, sure. a lot of travel in his films, so it's always used. And it, it, Some people have complained about it. Some people praise it. But either way you look at it, it, it is a signature element of his films because it does – the way it's running, it doesn't almost feel real to a certain degree. Um, years later, you'd see it in stuff like Pulp Fiction where it's intentionally done to make it feel unreal and it works beautifully uh, for the for the intent of the scene. Right. But, you know. And I feel like black and white movies are kinder to rear projection than color ones because I feel like when yes. if you're watching like North by Northwest, you can totally tell that it's a set. It's not like they're not really in a car driving around. Right. But, uh, you know, you... In this, it's a little bit like you know it, but if you didn't, I guess it would just pass I, as like a train. I believe the way the shot's composed in, uh, in Lady Vanishes, there's a better sense of where the focus should lie and that's not just in hitchcock movies like that's in a lot of those older films from like the 50s and 60s where they were oh it's all over the place yeah and you know it's like it's pretty obvious early technicolor films not everything holds up right most of it does but not not all of it and i think one of the reasons they get a like i think the reason that rear projection works so well in this movie in addition to because it's black and white is because of the like lighting effects on set. And they didn't mention this at all in the commentary and I was kind of surprised, but it's a small detail, but they're like as the train is traveling, they're like it their shadows flashing mm-hmm. as if, you know, like there's a stationary like bar or something across the window and light from the train is passing, you know, past it, past it, past it, and so there's shadows being cast all the time. Right. And I think that that really helps trick your brain into thinking that you that this is a real train that they're on i don't know how they did that i don't know if it was if they had like a moving set somehow because you can kind of see the actors stumbling around a little bit sometimes like they're on a real train there has there there has to be a creation of motion within it in order to create that effect with anything you're doing of that nature on a train or anything like that even if you don't have like people shaking it around there's something at the bottom shaking it um but yeah no um and we might as well, before we jump into the breakdown of this whole thing, um, Corinne, why don't you give us a plot synopsis plot of the lady, the lady, the lady vanishes? If you could sum it up in a catching the classic style. Okay. Well, I actually don't really summarize my catching the classics a lot of times because most people have seen them. I do that for the Miyazaki ones. No, that's, that's right. Okay, I, yeah, I did yeah. that for the Miyazaki. Just do it the Not way that <laughs> has seen those. Yeah. So the lady vanishes. Um, 
we start off in the country of Bondrica, which is fictional. Mm-hmm. And there's been an avalanche that has delayed the train travel. And there's all these people who are staying in the hotel waiting for the next train, which will be the following day. Mm-hmm. And there's like a lot of shenanigans going on. Not really anything super sinister up until the very end, right before, you know, it starts over or not starts over. It's, you know, the next day and everybody's boarding the train. Mm-hmm. Um, we get introduced to a lot of different characters including Iris Henderson, who's kind of our main uh, heroine for the movie, and Gilbert. Just Gilbert. Yeah, He's just, just Gilbert. Gilbert. Yeah. Gilbert, who's our hero, but we get to know him more in the second half. Played by Michael Redgrave. Um, in his the, uh, film, theatrical film debut. Yep. Um, and we'll talk about that more probably. Yeah. And <laughs> also the lady who ends up vanishing no, wait she this is a lady who vanishes you're telling me that a lady vanishes and the lady vanishes yes but it's shut not up iris henderson no it, it is, is miss Freud, played by dame may witty yes who's awesome yep and so they're on the train and or before they get on the train iris gets uh something falls onto her head or mm-hmm. actually is pushed onto her head yeah because there's some sinister stuff going on well because iris was not the intended target right was she or was she yeah. and um so she and miss Freud kind of connect on the train <laughs> yeah and then all of a sudden iris you know because she's gotten this hit blow to the head she goes to sleep she wakes up miss Freud is gone mm-hmm. and so then she kind of starts looking for her and as she cannot find her her search becomes more desperate she kind of recruits more people to help look for her some people who maybe saw her lie to her some people um you know try to convince her like oh no like you just got a blow to the head like you just made it up so there's definitely this tension going on of whether Miss Froy was real mm-hmm. or whether Miss Froy, like Iris, imagined her somehow. Yeah. So, um, right off the bat, and by the way, good not spoiling it, right off the bat, if you have not seen The Lady Vanishes, there are going to be spoilers for this. And normally don't do a spoilery section for some of these because the ones we've been talking about have been like established classics that everybody knows. Lady Vanishes is one you may not have seen. So if you have not seen the movie yet, please, please, please don't listen any further. Yeah, go check it out at the library. Yeah, check it out at the library or go to thecriteriancollection.com where you can find it available for fairly cheap uh, and uh, in a wonderful uh, collector's-ish edition that has plenty of special features. The commentary that Corinne mentioned, uh, there's a wonderful visual uh, essay by Leonard Leff. Uh, there's a 10 minute interview between Alfred Hitchcock and um, oh, another uh, famous guy who's named uh, Hit- Truffaut, Francois Truffaut. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. And there's also <laughs> one of one of France's most important filmmakers. Yeah, that dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. I don't yeah, that know fucker. Film. Yeah, that fucker. What? What? You, what, what just uh, tr- Truffet? Yeah, Truffet did it. Yeah. Truffles. You know, truffles. We'll just call him truffles. <laughs> There's also another film on the Criterion. And side note, this is actually my first Criterion experience. Woo! Which is weird because I own The Princess Bride on Criterion, but I haven't watched it yet. So it's that's sleek, why. isn't it? It's slick. The menus are nice. Yeah. It's pretty wonderful. Hitchcock, I'm going to say all Hitchcocks and this belong DVD on this. the that I watch, so I'm sure the Blu-ray is even better. Oh, it looks phenomenal. Like D- Criterion DVDs are really good. The, the, but I, when I saw their Blu-rays, I was just like, wow, this everything looks so clean and crisp and wonderful. I imagine the DVD looks just fine. It's just, yeah. you know, it may transfer different on a 4K TV. But anyway, as of this moment, though, we are going to break into the, the, the story of The Lady Vanishes. And 
Before we jump right into the plot, I do want to say this is almost kind of like a companion piece to last episode where we were talking Rebecca, because Rebecca is also based on a novel. Unlike the Lady Vanishes experience, um, Rebecca is adhered to almost to a fault in terms of its source material, with the exception of certain things that the Hayes Code wouldn't allow and that Selznick didn't want. Within the case of Lady Vanishes, we immediately have a, a, a contrasting element where much of the source material is changed, and not all because of censors, but mainly because of just upping the ante and making something more interesting. Yes, it was humor. They yeah. added a lot of the humor to the movie that was not in the original novel, as I understand it. Speaking <laughs> of... Having never read the novel, of course. Yeah, but speaking of humor... We'll jump right into it. So we start in the little village of Bandrika. Um, That's a country. We're the country, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the country of Bandrika. Uh, anyway, it's a stand-in for war-torn Europe. And um, we we do that miniature set where we the camera pushes in through the city. Like, you know, like just and there's a, a little car moving. It's so cute. It's a, a little micro-machine. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a micro-machine back then. They called them prop toys. Um but so yeah, we we do that we do that sweeping shot through Bandrika, and then it dissolves into the interior of a hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and the, the first shot is of Miss Freud. Uh, yes, indeed. The articular lady who vanishes. Yes, but we well we don't know that she's going to vanish yet, so right. just hang tight. She hasn't yeah. vanished yet; she's there. No, that's something they brought up in the commentary: is that the whole like first twenty five minutes, yeah. you know, a lady's going to vanish. Yeah, you just don't know which one. Yeah, and you get three. Yeah, and you get to love her so much that when she's gone, you're like, "Where'd that lady go to? She must have vanished. We got to find her." Anyway, <laughs> um, but anyway, we're in the hotel in Bendrika, and um, uh, looks like the train's not going to leave tonight. Boo hoo! Uh, enter in um, Charters and Caldecott. Um, (laughs) Charters and Caldecott, uh, Caldecott played by Naughton Wayne and Charters played by Basil Radford. Uh, these are two characters that are not in the novel as, um, uh, was discussed that there were characters that were added. These are two, they're comic relief. Uh, I love them. I think they're wonderful because they, because they're the kind of characters that I expect in a movie from this era American or British, where it's kind of like this side comic relief. Like I, I kind of thought they were like Birdie Wooster if he <laughs> had a twin. Yeah. <laughs> he's two, two Birdie Woosters and no Jeeves. <laughs> they, I, they, they described it in the commentary as, you know, being like two men who are kind of stuck in adolescence. And they're yeah. basically two uh, schoolboys who never grew up. We, we, At least not mentally. We'd re- we'd refer to it this day and age as a bromance. That that's basically what it is. Charles and, Charters and Caldecott. Charters and Caldecott is the first instance of bromance in film history. Probably not, but it's it's an early example. Yeah, their whole dialogue is very misleading because like I said I haven't seen this since high school so yeah. that whole and like I, said, I don't know if I even watched the first 25 minutes the first time yeah but that whole like oh you know we gotta get home what's England gonna be doing oh da, da. and this whole thing I'm like oh you know in my brain I'm like around World War Two we're thinking something going on yeah we're thinking the fog of war and this is like th- this is an unheard of in the Hitchcock British period because he tackles similar ish areas before this in the man who knew too much in the 39 steps the idea of government secrets the ideas of a storm gathering in europe um and it kind of culminates 
with foreign correspondent, which is the more explicit propaganda-ish approach to, hey, there's a war coming, get fucking ready. And as we find out, at the very end of the film, there was a storm coming. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> we'll chat about that in a second. Yeah. Um, we'll make it more than a second. But anyway, Charters and Caldecott uh, find out that they aren't going to make their train and they try to register for a hotel room because they want to make sure they get out of there so they can go to... These characters are wonderful and I love them, but their their priorities are weird. They don't want to miss a cricket match so bad that they do some very interesting things in this movie to throw the plot around in a in an interesting way. They get a hotel room, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not a hotel room. <laughs> they get to sleep with the maid. Uh, well, they get to sleep in the maid's room. In the maid's room. And I don't know. Where the hell did the maid sleep? It, well, I I don't know. Was she going to sleep under the bed? or I don't think there was room under the bed. She puts a hat box under the bed. So there's not really a lot of room. Is it assumed that she'd be going out to hang out with like a bow or just Maybe like, or even like just somebody else in the village who could put her up for the night? I have... Maybe she slept in the barn. I don't know. But, but it, it's, it's weird. It's never fully explained. All they know is, is that it's an inconvenience to them because she may have to change. And th- that's an inconvenience to them. Mm-hmm. They're very properly British. They're very British. Oh, my gosh. To a point where there's a subtext of something different going on. And it's not unfamiliar Hitchcock territory. There's a little... There's a bit of a homosexual undertone to uh, Charters and Caldecott a little bit, and it's but it's not, like, supremely overt. Like, no. it's, it's just there. And honestly, I didn't think it was that much until we see them like later in that kind of prologue you know first 25 minutes when they're sharing pajamas yeah because there is the shot when the maid comes in to change and it's very quick i missed it like the first time um where they get kind of flustered and one of them knocks their pajamas into like the washing bowl and so it gets wet yeah so they have to hang up one set of the pajamas and so they have to share the other with one wearing the top and the other wearing the bottom yeah it's see it's it's again there's there's some there's an undertone there but there there's also you know another sitting in bed next to each other like holding open the newspaper you know yeah no it, that and that's it's a very much like domestic couple kind of thing yeah but it's but it's never like you know like it's funny like it it's it's amazing how much you get away with in it because especially in britain like i know america's is not gonna allow it period but the fact that britain's even censor board is even allowing it and i think it does ultimately come from the british sense of humor and the their approach to humor is different than our approach to humor. Um, and I think it's because those characters are so awkward. They're so generally. goofy. They're so goofy. They're so goofy. I don't think it's because I think they get away with it because there's never any kind of indication from those characters that that is what they're up to. Yeah, it's it's not too dissimilar. You see it many many years or not many years they're not like making like lusty eyes or whatever no like i said you you get it many years later with um with the bob hope bing crosby movies where they have a chummy atmosphere about them i think the difference is is that charters and caldecott um never try to re- reclaim their masculinity in that respect uh whereas bob hope and bing crosby if they get anywhere too near to each other to the point where it's uncomfortable they push each other away and go i'm a man um so but like again you know the 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 buddy comedy kind of aspect to it is there but Mm -hmm. i think hitchcock 
seeds in different stuff within what they're doing on screen to project that image while not explicitly saying it. So like it's at the end of the day, they are just two people who are really interested in getting to a cricket match. And yet there's something more to it. So, um, but anyway, they are not the most important part of the movie, no, uh, but we're going to be talking spend a lot of time with them, which oh. is when I rewatched it this week, the first time I was very frustrated with how much time we spend with them, mm-hmm. you know, versus like, think like Mr. And Mrs. Todd Hunter. Well, Mrs. Quote unquote. Yeah. Um, you know, we spend an ample amount of time with them relative to their importance later in the story. Right. But I feel like with, uh, charters and Caldecott, like we spent a lot of time with them Yeah, and they don't factor in as much as you think they would. It, I mean, they do factor in, <coughs> but I just like that whole 25 minutes. I'm like, I thought well, this was like about the lady vanishes. Like, who are these people? There's an element to it that reminds me of a ensemble piece with uh, Lady Vanishes. And it's a film that doesn't suggest that when you read the synopsis. Like, it feels like it very much is going to be solely about Iris and Gilbert. Um, and it is. But I we... think it's that second act. Yeah. So you have the first act where you kind of get introduced to everybody. And yeah. Everybody kind of gets an ample amount of time. And then you get the last, like, 20 ish minutes where there's the shootout. We're in spoilers now. So yeah. there's the shootout, and pretty much everybody we've spent time with is there. Yeah. But it's that second chunk where it's mostly Iris, Gilbert, the doctor, and kind of Miss Froy. That that's when, you know, Charters and Caldecott and. Mr. and Mrs. Todd, Todd Hunter. Hunter. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're they're still in it, but we definitely spend more of the focus on the people we should be focusing on. Well, yeah, and by that point, um, Mr. Todd Hunter uh, ceases to be at all, period. So Right, um, in the third act. Yeah, um, but um, anyway, that's very far into spoilers. But, um, the, uh, but no, like, so Charters and Caldecott, though, they're not the only ones we meet at the hotel. We also right. meet Mr. and Mrs. Todd Hunter, as we were just talking about, which... It's a barrister and his mistress. As um, we later find out. And which, by the way, Mr. Todd Hunter would not do well in the age of Twitter. I have to say he would be he would be paranoid AF about Instagram and the Facebook and whatnot. He'd be worried about Mrs. Todd Hunter tagging him every place because of all the photos. Those of all the photos. And she seems like she's very happy to the point where she'd want to take selfies with him because she's she's happy with him. But Mr. Todd Hunter's like, no, 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 though that can't go up on Facebook or 1930s Facebook. I'm going to call it snappy book, whatever you want to call it. Um, But no, yeah, they're 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 in an illicit affair or a a, a torrid affair where, you know, he's he won't divorce his wife because it could cause a scandal that would cost him a job. And she's more willing to go through the 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 realm of scandal to come out happy on the other end right. which which hey more power to her she she knows what she wants in life she as we find out in the third act she told her husband mm-hmm. that this was going to be you know she was going away and that it would be the last time that he ever saw her exactly um so by the time you get to the end it's an unfortunate situation that we deal with but uh and then we meet Iris Henderson, our our heroine, which I've got to say, of all the Hitchcock films we've been covering thus far, Iris might be my favorite character in a Hitchcock movie in terms of, if not just in terms of female characters, but just in terms of a character because she's a heroine that is 
is so determined to to figure out an answer that I appreciate her gumption so much. Like she she's just like no, no nobody believe how do you not believe me? Like and it's I know it's the setup for the later films that we get in the psychological thriller realm where like nobody believes me. Like um, I think the most recent example that I've seen is Unsane by Steven Soderbergh where um, Claire Foy uh, nobody believes that something's happening to her. Um, but she just sells it in a very interesting way. And she's also got a bit of a relatability. She doesn't want to be getting married to the blue blooded check chaser that she's engaged to. And, and well, she's her... done everything else except be in love. Yeah. So exactly. Yeah. She, Oh, what else is there to gu- do? guys? She ate fancy food and can, she's done. Everything. She, she lists a lot of fancy things where I'm just like, I heard can. And I was like, that's before the film festival. So I was just like, I heard can. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, no, so she's been through it all, but she's, you know, like many heroines or female leads in a movie of this era, she's like, yeah, I'm engaged to someone, but I want more, you know, and that, like, and it's, it's, it's obviously a marriage of a convenience. Um, but her, um, her friends are joking around with her and kidding her, but deep inside she's feeling like, man, I don't want to go through this, which I will say that if I could be serious for a moment, it's, it's, it's a Hitchcock heroine that you see very little of as time goes on in terms of, she's much more resourceful, I think, than, uh, Hitchcock heroines tend to be afterward. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause when I rewatched the movie this week, I felt like she, she kind of gets upstaged in the second half of the movie by Gilbert, by Gilbert. Yeah. That in the first half, she's, definitely like you were saying she's resourceful she knows what she's about you know she's not gonna let anybody try to change her mind yeah you know then she's trying to be like oh okay like fine i need to rest like i'm clearly seeing things but then once she gets proof she's again like you know she is reconvicted of yes i did see her she is real something's going on but then yeah like once you kind of get into the conspiracy part of it that's when gilbert upstage her upstages her and it's and then, like, oh my gosh, that scene during the shootout when she's like, "Gilbert!" I was like, no, that, so, no, 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 no. So I, I, I agree with that. I will say that it, definitely the shootout is where she regresses a little bit, and it's mm-hmm. more the Gilbert and whoever else is firing a gun show. But for the majority of the film, I do feel that she has a lot more, um, a lot more to do than I'd seen in other films of Hitchcock's as I've been doing this, this research. Um, at the very least, I'd say she's a character that I enjoy watching. I think the only one other one that I enjoy watching more in terms of like, this is a female character that I enjoy watching is the mother and the man who knew too much. And that's only because she gets to shoot the bad guy at the end with a gun to the head. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually pretty violent for a for a film of that era. Like it's 1935, so it's. Um, but anyway, well, and the commentary actually kind of pointed out that there are quote a lot of powerful women in this movie, mm-hmm. or something. Well, uh, and, I, and I'm I think for the era that's definitely the case. The fact that Miss Roy we find out is a spy. Yeah, she's 70 years old. The actress at the time was 70 years old. Yeah, they Dave- act like. Um, they act like she's like middle age. I think whenever um, Iris tries to describe her when she first goes missing, she says she's like middle aged. But um, Dame May Witty yeah. was actually like in her seventies when she filmed this. 
And she's a badass spy, so suck it, James Bond. <laughs> Miss Froy can do your job way better than you. Oh my god, I'm just picturing Dame May Woody walking <laughs> through the 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 gun barrel shot and then shooting her pistol out of a handbag. Oh, she, wouldn't have, <laughs> she wouldn't even have a pistol. She'd have like a scarf or a hat. Oh or shoot. Something. She throws an umbrella. She throws yes, an umbrella. She would throw an umbrella. It's not literally. like and, and no, not like the penguin, you Batman fans. I'm talking just like just throwing an umbrella like you're like about to beat a robber that's trying to mug you um yeah no like i say though she is a badass she actually is she was a very famous english stage actress Mm -hmm. uh the last film she made was in 1948 the return of october um and um playing an ant (laughs) um uh but she uh has been in other films like the white cliffs of dover stage door canteen she played herself in it and it's a very fun little role um, and then you have Return to Yesterday, A Bill of Deforcement. She's in Suspicion. She plays Mrs. Martha McCandlaw, who's like a little – she's a, she's like a um, uh, murder she wrote-ish, like where she, she writes mysteries, but she also is really good at solving them. Um, and she provides a lot of information to Joan Fontaine in that movie uh, about how to commit the perfect murder. Um I might have to check this out. Yeah, Suspicion's a really fun movie. It's also got Ryan's hero and whatnot, so um, uh, Cary Grant. Right. Uh, but, I was um, going to say something. Now I forgot what it was. Uh, but, yeah, no, she is a she's a fantastic lady. And before she did films, obviously, she did the stage. So she, oh, I remember what it was. Um, so, actually, um, another change that they made from the novel is her character being a spy. Mm. Because in the novel, she was um, just, like, the governess to the like a very influential family and she like accidentally found out information that was it would implicate somebody in a, a political murder plot and an accidental courier essentially and in this film she's an outright spy yes. but she says herself i wouldn't call myself a spy she she's Jesus. Yeah, but she's the spy. She that's how badass she is at being a spy because she goes I'm not a spy. <laughs> and then she you know totally. but but like if I mean if it were a Mel Brooks movie she'd turn to the camera and go, mm-hmm. "Yeah, I'm a spy." <laughs> like and then just turn back and go, "I'm not one." Um and then one more uh female character in this movie who does do a lot of uh cool shit is the nun, quote unquote, the nun. Yeah. Um What she, kind of nun wears high heels? What kind of nun wears high heels? That, I'll tell I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, a Hitchcock nun. <laughs> Yeah, and and maybe a Russ Meyer nun, but definitely a Hitchcock nun. (laughs) Yeah, he apparently went to like Jesuit schooling and was not a fan. I I mean, at least she's not a real nun. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like they they're explicit about like it's not a real nun. Um, but um, anyway, um, and then actually, I'd say Mrs. Todd Hunter has a bit of power. It's not the same kind of power though. It's. She has control over a situation for a moment that's fascinating to watch. Yes. Because her situation ties directly into if the barrister is discovered, blah, 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 blah. But she can get married if she admits to knowing where the lady went. So, um, and then, um, but the other character we meet, though, is Gilbert uh, in the hotel. Uh, And when we first meet Gilbert, we are not impressed by his demeanor at all. He pissed me off so much in that scene. I will say... Also, who doesn't lock their hotel room door? Well, it. it <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it's it's Bendrika in the late thirties. They're on the brink of war. It's a time of She's just still an unmarried woman. It, it, Why the hell wouldn't she lock her be- her hotel room door? You know, 
she heard the music that the balladeer was playing. Maybe she thought something might happen later. You never know. But and then again, also, it's an open invitation for terrible things to happen. So, uh, because plot. <laughs> yeah, plot plot is a very heavy driver in certain aspects of films, guys. I don't know if you know this. It's like, why did the Harriman's herbal tea thing land on the window of all places so he uh, could see it? You know, it's convenient. Cause, cause, uh, because plot. B- b- well, and also because movies and the power of magic. Why does Rose McGowan have a machine gun leg in Planet Terror? And why does it work? I don't know, but I like it. Um, <laughs> uh but uh uh so no um we meet gilbert and he is preserving folk music of uh of the past uh by performing it very loudly at the top level of this hotel mm-hmm. causing disturbances to both dame may witty and iris and for dame may witty especially because that balladeer is carrying a message to her from the window and if she can't hear it government secrets ain't going to get delivered to britain right. so gilbert However important his mission is to cultural uh, preservation, he, he's fucking up with the like, he's fucking up with potential things to help the war effort. So uh, it, it, he's fucking up the Allies' plans. Essentially, is what I'm saying. Oh, and also he's just being a butt. Yeah, he's being a oh yeah he's he but he you know does that at a hotel. Yeah, you know what he he's a he's a he's a scoundrel though. He's a scoundrel because when he's about to get kicked out of his hotel room, he says, "Uh, uh, uh-uh, uh, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna get kicked out of this room, then I'm gonna take over another room." So what does he do? He just breaks into Iris's room, um, you know. And now obviously it's to prove the point of like, you know, give me, <laughs> right? It's pull back the to him. pull and pull back the complaint so I can go back to my room. But like, there is a similarity to the way uh, Michael Redgrave, who I think is great in the film, I think he's wonderful in the film, I think he does a great job. Uh, the way his character acts and the way Robert Donat acts in the 39 steps around Madeline Carroll, um, which you haven't seen the 39 steps, but they have a similar situation where neither of them want to be in the same room with each other, but the man's kind of making more light of it. And it's playful banter of the era. I don't know how well it would hold water today per se, um, mainly because I haven't seen it done effectively uh, by any current film, but there is a, element to it that is charming to watch in spite it's of the very screwball it, comedy. It, it is it's very much a screwball you got it, like a grant and hepburn kind of a situation in bringing a baby or mm-hmm. um it, there's there's something about it that's still remarkable what's amazing of it is how frank it is because of the british sensibility behind it there's a little bit more of a punch to it um uh, actually i equated a little bit to the how the way the thin man movies act with william powell and myrna loy where um there's a bit more of claws out um, between both of them. Um, and in this case, he just takes a shower flat out while she's uh, like, he's like, oh, while you're at it. Have... He just turns it on. But yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah. Um, and then um, actually one of the weirdest ones that I, I thought it was just like a weird touch, but I thought it was wonderful. is like he kisses his cane and just throws it on the bed. It's like, wow. That was his first day of filming. Yeah. And it's just like right off a the movie ever. That was his first day. Right off the gate, Michael Redgrave knows exactly what to bring to what to bring to a cinematic performance. It's it's pretty remarkable. Actually, um, they were saying in the commentary that Paul Lucas, who we'll talk about here in a bit, mm-hmm. um, actually approached him, and because c- he had seen Michael Redgrave on the stage, uh, on the stage, 
and was like, you, you know, you're a real actor. Like, you should bring it, you know, basically is what he said. You should bring that same level of talent to the movie. Because I think at this point, Michael Redgrave was so frustrated <coughs> with how movies, movie shooting worked versus the theatrical, where it's like with theaters, you get like three weeks to rehearse. Yeah. And here you get three minutes. Yeah. And... You know, he was very frustrated with that and talked to Mike, uh, talked to our guy, Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. And Hitchcock's like, you just have to do it. <laughs> Sorry. Yep. You get three minutes, kid, not yep. three weeks. <laughs> um, and it's, he's wonderful in it. He's fantastic. That's actually, I didn't know that story. That's yeah. why I was just kind of listening now. I'm just like, I want more information on that. I need to, to I, I needed to listen to the commentary. It's the one thing I didn't do. Um, Apparently, it took Michael Redgrave. 15 years to come back and rewatch this film. Wow. Wow. Because I think he was just like so just getting used to that process. Sort of self-conscious about the effort, yeah. Right. Um I mean that's that's not unheard of if you're just starting off in anything and whatnot like, you know, you meet you hear about it all the time like I don't watch my own stuff kind right. of thing like anybody says that in the press and whatnot and like And for somebody who had only met her like once previously, these two actors in this scene have they, a lot of good chemistry. They work off of the the tension very well with each other, mm -hmm. and um, it, it's it's pretty remarkable to watch them. But so they they meet and then they part ways because he gets his room back. It's the next day. Uh, Dame Maywoody has gotten her message and gotten some sleep because uh, she needs to be a cool spy. And in order to be a cool spy, you got to get your beauty rest. So <clears throat> they get up. They're heading to the train. Uh, Dame May Woody um, is pushed out of the way by um, uh, by Iris when a falling brick is about to hit her over the head. But it hits Iris on the head, which, you know, my... It actually almost kind of looks like it landed on her shoulder. Yeah. Which I'm I just, don't know. So I'm like, just like, well, Maybe if the... I'd have to rewatch the scene. If the brick didn't kill iris was it gonna kill dame may woody because like i don't know i don't know if you know that she's a spy she probably could handle a brick to the head like from that far up i mean like with a brick to the head you'd probably have to like hit them really hard and not let it drop i don't know like again it's like a flower pot i think yeah so i don't know like can a can do androids well, dream of electric sheep i don't think it was supposed to kill her i think it was just supposed to knock her out Right. Because as we find out later, the doctor, who's played by Paul Lucas, mm -hmm. um, he talks about how there's a patient coming aboard who has a cranial fracture or something. Yeah. And it's like, oh, because that was what Miss Freud was supposed to have. Yeah, exactly. She was supposed to have a head injury just like his patient, So that she could be wrapped up in the bandages. So that that's right. in the bandages and carted off. Right, right, right. So, okay, or well. At least that's like a hint. I don't know if that was their exact plan. But now, no, it, it must have been because that's because then that's how they justify wrapping her in the bandages. Oh, God, I feel like an but idiot. Then now. What, what, I mean, they already had the double set up at the next stop. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I guess they were just going to cart the other person. Yeah, they were just going to cart other Miss Froy away and say it was the other person. I, I'm not sure. I don't know how that works. But Maybe he called ahead and he was like, hey, plan A didn't work. Let's go to plan B. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Dame May Woody is uh, saved by Iris in that respect. And um, uh, but Iris does become dizzy from the from the impact of the brick mm -hmm. uh, or flower pot. The, the thing that fell. And uh, uh, 
she's uh, helped onto the train. She sees kaleidoscope vision for a minute and passes out. Which, by the way, is some very nice kaleidoscope vision. It's not. It's not unheard of in Hitchcock. He does. He did it before uh, in films prior to it, and it's something that we now use today in more comical elements of it, but he uses it in the drama of the situation really well. Like it's, and it's, it's innovating some visual techniques that then are used later for practically anything you want to do. Um, they get on the train, uh, Iris and Miss Freud Freud go to have tea. Sorry, I'm clearing my throat. Uh, Iris and Miss Freud go to have tea. Uh, Miss Freud asks that, uh, only her specific tea be made. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, but a million Mexicans drink it. Uh, and uh, she writes her name in um, on the window by fogging up the window and then writing the name. Right. Um, and uh, because there's so much noise on the train that she yeah, can't, hear, can't the, hear. Yeah. Because she's like, Freud? <clears throat> no, Freud. And then she writes it F-O-R-Y. Yeah. It rhymes with joy. Yeah, and uh, the only people to see her in uh, drinking tea with Mrs. Freud are Charters and Caldecott. Who uh, have to pass the sugar. Yeah. They're using it to demonstrate some kind of they're, cricket They're today. They're wasting food describing sports. Oh, okay. If there's one thing I can't tolerate, is somebody wasting food discussing sports. So I'm a little bit of a germaphobe, and that scene where they like pick the sugar up and put it back in the little bin and mm-hmm. hand it to her, and I'm like, no! I don't do that. You know, if if Leonardo DiCaprio as Howard Hughes was on that train with him and saw that, he'd fucking kill them. He'd beat them to death with a, with a stick. Uh, I mean, that's just you don't do that to the sugar cubes, man. Like, Charters and Caldecott are very. I tell you, there's they're some kind of one note. Like they 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 only have one thing that they're thinking about. There's some the reps. There's some rapscallions of sorts. I'll tell you, they're they're, they're certainly a troublesome. Duo, to be sure. kind of makes me want to watch that, like, spin-off. The two spin-off movies. We don't know that they're going to have a spin-off yet. Shh. Um, but, uh, but anyway, no, they, they see them. And then, um, and then uh, at one point, Miss Freud had also stumbled into the compartment where Mr. Mrs. And Mrs. Todd, Todd Hunter, Hunter are. Uh, and so, how the hell do, everybody else gets a compartment to their self. But Miss Freud and Iris have to share one with, like, four other people. Um. I don't know how that works. Do you just get a pick, or do you? You know, pay extra I, do, for I, 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 I don't think, I, I don't think that train line was as fancy as the Orient Express, and nor were they expecting Hercule Poirot to be on their train. So they, you know, uh, I mean, I, again, I think it's just like it's, you know, whatever you get a ticket for. I mean, I don't know the ticketing situation for the Lady Vanishes. I'd love there to be that info, like. One of those like Marvel one shots for the lady vanishes to explain the ticketing situation. Uh, and by the way, I'd love Colson to be in that too. Um, so, uh, uh, but yeah, so anyway, they, uh, they stumble into the Todd Hunter's, um, private chambers <laughs> or the private car. Uh, yeah. 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 The, 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 the car room. <laughs> I'd have not written that. Uh, yeah. But anyway, um, they stumble upon the Todd Hunters. They leave. They go back to their compartment. Um, she, Iris, Iris falls asleep uh, and then wakes up. And Miss Freud's gone. Miss Freud's gone. It's almost as if the lady vanished. But anyway. Vanishing lady. But the thing is, is that people who were with her in the compartment before she went to sleep 
and clearly saw her are now claiming that they didn't see her and saying that she's crazy. Um, and you have the Italian man who's the, um, uh, the, the Gabo, uh, the magician, uh, and the, uh, the lady that's next to him, which is, um, Signora Dopo. Um, oh, she is weird looking. Yeah. She's very menacing looking. She's got that spinster look like that like the high weave and glasses like she's not old but she's not young Wait, is either because there's another lady in the compartment too who only speaks italian the signora dopo oh is it yeah okay. the signora dopo I thought it was somebody else yeah um and then uh uh but anyway she's uh they're they're saying we don't you you came you went to get tea you came back alone yeah but oh, and side note: the right before Miss Froy uh, disappears, there and before Iris falls asleep, there is the shot of the magician and his son, mm-hmm. and he's doing the kind of s- sleight of hand very poorly, um, where he's like making something disappear, and then of course that's exactly what happens: is that we see miss Freud disappear yeah or does she was she ever there to begin with exactly because iris has received a blow to the head um so anyway they they are they are essentially um denying that they've ever seen miss Freud. so naturally iris is freaking out she goes around everybody else is denying it uh she goes to gilbert Gilbert goes, well, I have no reason to lie in this situation whatsoever, so I, of course, believe you, and I believe I remember a woman there, so I'll help you try to find her. Um, I think at the end of the day, Gilbert just wants to get out of where he is, like that compartment that he's in to get some fresh air because it's got to be stuffy in there with, like, you know, All hanging. people dancing yeah, around. You know, he's flying commercial or, or riding the rails commercial, so, you know, he wants to get out and stretch his legs a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, the Todd Hunters... Uh, claim they haven't seen her, uh, or at least Mr. Todd Hunter does. Mrs. Todd Hunter uh, calls out bullshit to Mr. Todd Hunter in private because he knows she knows that he's doing this specifically so that there's no possibility of a scandal. Right. So Mrs. Todd Hunter decides, well, I'm going to tell him I saw the lady. And so then she confirms it with Iris. But then when, uh, when uh, Gilbert and Iris go back to meet up with uh, the people who claimed to um, that who have not seen her, they <laughs> they say no, no, the lady you were talking about, she's here. Uh, oh, by the way, before that, they do meet our uh, last character, which we should introduce. Yes. Um. Uh. I don't know if you guys know who Paul Lucas is, but he was kind of a a very interesting looking evil dreamboat there. Um. Uh. And I know he... him as Professor Aranax from Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Yep. Which I was going through that cast list, and I'm like, pretty much all these people were in a Alfred Hitchcock movie at some point. I remember him from a movie that he won his Oscar for called Roch on the Rhine. Um. And uh, but Paul, which, he's another person in this cast who has a very prominent stage background. Yeah, and he's one of those actors that came over to the to the states eventually to to flee the situation in Europe and ended up very very much prospering off of his ability to kind of play European characters and play villains to a certain respect. Conrad Veidt had a similar career in that respect, but Paul Lucas was way more versatile. Um but he plays Dr. Hartz who is a renowned uh um 
I call him a head doctor. I don't remember exactly what he is. I'm just going to call him a head doctor. He yeah. knows some head doctor stuff because at the end of the day, he's not a fucking doctor. Um, he's a fucking spy, uh, just like Dame May Whitty. Um, but uh, he's the ones you least suspect. No, I'm pretty sure I suspected him from the get go. <laughs> I remember seeing this movie when I was younger and going like, "Well, he's the bad guy. He's got a mustache." <laughs> But Gilbert has a mustache, too, so, you know, maybe I'm just looking at Paul Lucas and going, like, you're evil somehow. When I rewatched it, I forgot who all was involved in the conspiracy. So I was like, I don't remember if, who's in on it. You know, when the people in the compartment are like, no, we didn't see her. I'm yeah. like, okay, they're on it, in on it. But I didn't remember that he is also in on it. See the sen- He's kind of the ringleader. See, the senora, I don't really think about too hard, but, uh, but the, the magician... The nun and Paul Lucas are the ones I remember the most. Um, but anyway, he uh, tries to throw everything off by saying, like, Iris might be like imagining things and hearing right. things, which brings us to the whole concept of, you know, playing with our perception as the audience that maybe we're being put into a position where we are unreliable ourselves, that the information that we have received may not be what it is. And now some filmmakers use this to lay in twists near the end of the film and whatnot, but Hitchcock uses it in this case to just throw us into a sense of confusion. Only then when we realize that we're actually right, we feel even more invigorated to keep going, Um, which kind of reflects Iris's journey. Right. I think when you spend time with Iris and with um, the doctor, you definitely get that vibe of an unreliable character point of view mm-hmm. but when you go back to the todd hunters or to caldecott and charters mm-hmm. you th- i mean their entire conversations are about how this lady was real and now she's gone yeah even Th- though they don't really care yeah At least well caldecott don't really care okay they but they tell and the todd hunters th- have their own drama yeah but- and Char- charters and caldecott do the thing that's pretty wonderful in this movie in the sense that it's terrible, and it's the most self-centered thing you can do. Uh, they intentionally say we haven't seen the lady because if they uh, do, they don't, they, they, they don't. Well, they don't want to get involved. They don't want the train stopped because they do not want to miss the cricket match in Manchester, the test match, the test game, yeah. whatever you want to call it. They are. That is like. Somebody saying, I'm not going to tell someone that I saw someone murdered because I got to go to a Bronco game. That's 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 the modern day equivalent that I I can except to be on the RTD light rail. We kind of do that sometimes in our everyday life. Like there have definitely been times where I've seen an accident on the highway and just kind of drove right past. Even if I witnessed it happening. But that I was just kind of like, oh, you know, somebody else will call 911. Right. I wasn't the closest to it. I wasn't. Other people will do that. But they're on the. I'm not. Okay. Okay. If if I'm going to let that go, I'll let it go for the moment. But they're on. It's still not the right thing. No, exactly. And they're on the train. Like, like it or not, you're stuck in this space. And these characters. Their their motives are off until the very end when they become heroic. And then, and that's only really because they have to. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're left with no choice. But anyway, um, uh, a fake woman is put in place of the original Mrs. Froy, um, 
Iris says, that ain't her. Right. And she doesn't say it that way because she's British. So right. she goes, that isn't her. But <laughs> um, I can't. We get that shot again of, you know, he was like, oh, well, you maybe were projecting her face mm-hmm. onto Madame yeah. Kamansky or whatever her name is. Which Hitchcock then uses that again in a to similar situation. Yeah, dissolve and kind of like throw us off. Which is, everybody. which is an interesting way of visualizing the proposed insanity or like or like the doubt in her mind and it's a very interesting aspect that he he does later on in other films playing with you know the voice in your head or the images you think you see um you know what like one of my favorite ones of the voice in your head is psycho when marion's driving down the down the road after having stolen a bunch of money and hearing what she thinks people are saying about her miles away behind her mm-hmm. um so there's like that element of just kind of playing with the head and what what things are most important inside your mind in that specific moment um right. and i think again because we as the audience are privy to the conversations between caldecott and charters and the todd hunters mm-hmm. we kind of get more of the feeling like miss Freud was real and there is something going on. Yeah. Versus, I think if we didn't have those conversations, if we were just following Iris around the entire time, mm-hmm. you know, seeing these people lie to her face or seeing like Mrs. Todd Hunter say, I did see her. Oh, no, I didn't. Like, yeah, or whatever, you know, that it would put more doubt in our mind mm-hmm. and it would create even more tension. Yeah. Because then you maybe are getting into that unreliable POV character. Yeah. Versus what we get is. Well, you know, there's definitely some tension, mm-hmm. but it's never a big question, I think. And, and, and granted, I've already seen the movie, so. Yeah. And Hitchcock deals with these perceptions either through the POV or from a uh, second second person perspective in other films. Um, he, he addresses this in Suspicion directly. It's It's very much a woman trying to figure out if she's wrong for thinking what she's thinking or if her assumptions are correct. And consequently in Notorious, you have Cary Grant not believing Ingrid Bergman through a lot of it because of one of the feelings they have for each other, but two of her noted alcoholism at the beginning of the film. Now, now granted, however, you know, justified those notions are in his head is irrelevant. The bottom line is that's the theme he's focusing on. Um, in this particular one, though, it's more of a fun uh, affair uh, for the most part. Um, they get off at a station uh, and uh, Dr. Hartz's patient is brought on board, um, which is basically where they um, uh, make the switch mm-hmm. uh, and uh, put Dame May Woody in a bunch of bandages. But we don't know that yet. Uh, and a nun gets on board and the nun uh, is not a nun because she's wearing hair- high heels. Um, and a lot of the uh, action proceeds with Gilbert and uh, Iris figuring out different things through some action sequences essentially like especially in the baggage car oh my gosh with, that fight scene was hilarious with, with, in the, with the magician's disappearing act mm-hmm. and playing with the, the 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 hit the 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 disappearing trunk uh where they think they put the bad guy in there and it turns out he escaped out the back end which i'm just like you put the magician in his own trick he, you don't think he doesn't know how to get out of that <laughs> and they're putting the string around it that that's when the joke even becomes right. even funnier um it's uh and then uh they get out of the car uh and um they uh 
I think they kind of start piecing it together. At they that start point. they start piecing it together at that point, and then because, by but it's it sucks because at that point they don't have tangible proof mm-hmm. because there's not really a lot. There's not a lot of tangible things that Miss Froy left behind before the, she disappeared. The only thing she wrote her name on the thing and that disappeared, which that was one of the bomb under the table things. And then in the this t- movie. and then the tea bag the appears tea bag when appears. the trash is thrown out. Right, Gilbert sees it. Yeah, but then it flies away, so nobody else did. Yeah, but at least it's enough to convince him that Miss Froy is real and yeah. Iris is not making this up. Yeah. And then we have the glasses, which is what the fight is over between them and Dopo. Yeah, Senor Dopo. Senor Dopo. Yeah. Um, and then of course he steals the glasses and gets away through the vanishing trunk thing. It's like, mm. yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, she would get able to get out of it. <laughs> yeah. So um, then they don't have the glasses. So then, then they don't have the glasses. So they basically kind of go off of hunches and guesses and. The the hun the nun with the high heels is the kind of the giveaway for them, right? Because that's what leads them to believe that they need to look underneath those bandages, and um, uh, they discover everything. Paul Lucas finds out that they know, um, uh, what's going but on. They don't know he's in on the conspiracy. Exactly. All they know is that a nun is next to that bandaged body, and the nun is acting suspicious. So. Uh, there's a wonderful scene at the same spot where Mrs. Froy and Iris had tea, where we Gilbert our second bomb under the table, yeah, moment in this film involving poisoned beverage, um, or well, well uh, paralytic, pa- paralytic, yeah. Well, yeah, there's it's not poison; it's just something that would knock them out. Yeah, it's a knockout, knockout, knockout drinks. <laughs> right, but it would essentially mean that. <clears throat> They would not be able to rescue Miss Froy. Yeah, exactly. So, and it's a wonderful bomb under the table moment with Paul Lucas acting his butt off, Michael Redgrave acting his butt off, and, and that shot of like that looks up at Paul Lucas mm-hmm. with the glasses, like he's on the left side of the frame and the glasses are on the right. Those glasses had to be specially made for that shot because they're like ten inches tall. Mm-hmm. They're not that tall in real life. Those were different sets of glasses, but he just wanted to have that perspective. To, and he had to have bigger glasses to do that. Yeah, um, so that's a that is a good shot. That's it's that's that's amazing. The, what it's, it's amazing. Like Alfred Hitchcock knows what he's doing. It, it is. It, it, it's not only that. It's the idea that like in spite of the tight budgets that you'd have in British cinema, let alone early cinema period, mm-hmm. that you do something of that nature just to get something that specific. Like that's how meticulous and detailed he was. Um, right. And I think they said there was another movie of his where they did something similar. I think I don't remember which movie it was, but how there was like a a woman and like a gun, and they had to have both in focus at the same time, even though they were like different distances apart from the camera. So they had to get like a big gun made in order to do that. There's a um, there's there's a shot that he specifically constructs in Rebecca to do certain lighting cues and we talked about it in the last episode but um uh there's a shot with um uh 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 maxim's sister uh talking to i <laughs> played by joan fontaine uh i just love that she's just referred to as i um the narrator yeah the yeah this is de winter yeah the second usually the, the second mrs de winter um uh, there's a shot where they're talking to her and the, and the sister says it was Rebecca's 
and then the lights dim on the sister and it focuses solely on Joan Fontaine. Those were shot separately and then merged together in post. And that basically he could get that that theatricality. So there's like, I mean, it's not the same sh- like instance of a shot you're talking about with certain elements of depth of field and focus. Right. But that's the amount of meticulousness that he would do. Like that's the amount of like special effects or camera techniques that he would employ. And special props. Yes, exactly. To get that effect. Yeah, to have certain things going on, whether it, 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 whether it's props or using the things of the lighting stuff around you, like he. In order to impart something important on the audience, he would use it to a full extent. It's almost like what you were saying with the miniature earlier that, you know, that would just be CG now. Yeah. And there's an element to it that because we know it's practical and there, like it, it, it lends something further to it. And in the case of the Lucas shot, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily an effect that you do in computer, but there's something special about it that is uniquely him. That some filmmakers can still do shots like that today, but mm-hmm. I think that there's something lost still to this day because of how far we've come. It's not something like important that we've lost, but it's something that is fun to think about. Um, and then, um, but anyway, so the, they, they drink, drink the drink. Blood, they are drugged, yeah, yeah. They drink them, and that's another one of those because Gilbert drinks his first mm-hmm. and you think oh Iris won't won't drink hers and then right at the very end of the conversation um the doctor tells her like I don't I forget exactly what he says but he's like oh you should you should drink that to calm your nerves. Yeah. So she does. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, no, both of them are drugged now. And then they go into the compartment where... Um, he's like, oh, it is Miss Froy. Yeah. And, and, but you're not going to be able to do anything about it because you're drugged. Yeah. And then they pass out only to then wake back up because... They weren't Yeah, drugged. they weren't drugged. They weren't drugged. So... Yeah, she fainted. And yeah, he pretended to pass out. Yeah, so uh, they wake up. Mm-hmm. They haven't been poisoned. The nuns on their well, side. They don't know that yet. Yeah, they think that they are just like waiting for it to take effect, and so Gilbert tells Iris to start doing some like exercises so that she won't fall asleep yeah exactly and he climbs out of the car because they're locked in to their compartment and he climbs out of the train to the next compartment mm-hmm. to go get miss Froy. right and he counters the nun and she's like you're right it is miss Froy. i didn't drug you and so he gets miss Froy, goes back to iris's compartment she's doing exercises and he like slaps her on the butt and he's like you're okay kid you're not really drugged <laughs> i'll explain it later yeah um so Long story short, we're now coming to this to this climax of this film where everything's going to coalesce in one big bang. And it starts with actually another stop at another station where Lucas gets off with who he assumes is Dame May Witty. But right. it's not, as we later you know, realize. They knocked out um, Madame K- Kaminsky or whatever. Yeah, Ma- yeah. Um, Kum- Kumar. Yeah, Madame Kumar. Uh, yeah, Madame Kumar. Yeah. Yeah, Madam Madam so, Kumar. So, something, Madam K. Whatever. Yeah, Madam K. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Josephine Wilson is the actress's name, uh, and I think it's Madam Kumar. Uh, she, uh, but so anyway, they put her in their place, and uh, the nun is in on it. Uh, and by that time, the train has left. Uh, they are uh, re- re- reconnecting with Miss Froy. Miss Froy starts laying out. Okay, this is what I do. 
Well, she doesn't actually do it right away. She kind of deni- she denies stuff at first. Yeah. And then she, then she finally caves and just goes like, all right, this is what I'm doing. The the secret message that I have to deliver to. Well, that's during the shootout because um, they're at the station. Yeah. And he un he is looking at the patient. Yeah. Who he thinks is Miss Freud, but it's actually M- Madame K. Mm-hmm. And he figures out it's actually Madame K that they switched her out with Miss Freud. Right. And then he talks to the officials. They uncouple the cars from the rest of the train. Mm-hmm. So it's just the compartment that the main characters are in. And, like, the dining car and the engine and everything. Mm-hmm. And everybody else got left behind at the station, I guess. Yeah. And so they drive off, or they ride off on the train. And that's when uh, Gilbert and Iris talk to Miss Freud, and they're like, you got to tell us what's going on. And she says no. She's, she's, she's a, like, she, I she, know, Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. They yeah. just... I'm just, I'm just an innocent victim of some kind of crazy kidnap plot. Um, but uh, But they keep going, and... As they're proceeding onto the train, the train is stopped. Right. Gilbert realizes that the cars have been uncoupled. Yeah. He go, they figure out, they're like, oh, no, like nobody else is here. But they're like, oh, but it's tea time. Yeah. The British will be in the dining car. And they are. So that's when we re-meet Caldecott and Charters yeah. and Mr. and Mrs. Todd Hunter. And everybody's there and everybody's there. And that's when Gilbert's like, hey, like. These people try to make an attempt on this lady. Yeah. Uh, meaning Miss Freud. Yeah. And, you know, something's going on. And that's... And, and then they don't believe him. Mm-hmm. The train stops. Um, they go to, like, look to see whether the cars have been uncoupled. The nun comes in, tied up. Yeah. And they're like, oh, okay, so maybe something is going on. Yeah. And then while they're trying to untie the nun, the official comes in, the officer... And he's like, oh, you know, there's been some kind of a mix up. And this is the and the officers that they have are their stand ins for their stand ins for a little thing called the Nazis. And um, the it's interesting to see even how early on, you know, he's portraying the look specifically towards something very much in the real world. Um, There's not like it's it's. It's funny because like uh, Wes Anderson actually pays homage to it in a weird way in the Grand Budapest Hotel with the way that Edward Norton's character is uniformed to a certain degree and also the way the characters are presented. Like they don't say the Nazis in that movie and they don't say mm-hmm. the Nazis in this one either. They right. s- this is still Bandrika. Yeah, this is still Bandrika. This is completely different country nobody ever heard of. Right. Um, and it's made up. But uh, that official um, offers them to get off the train. Um, so that they can, you know, uh, be contacted by uh, go to Br- the British embassy. British embassy, um, and, uh, uh, and that's when the nun, yeah, clues in Gilbert, yeah, to the fact that the officer is in on the conspiracy, is yeah. trying to get them off the train to do some nonsense, yeah, and then uh, and he hits the officer over the head. And then another soldier fires and hits Charters in the hand. <laughs> Yep, and so Charters didn't believe so, he was trying to get out so, to go and check it. So and, already. So finally, it's like, okay, Charters and Caldecott have no choice. They have to fight now. And it's it's almost just like, oh, oh, I, I'm I'm going to still worry about my cricket game, but you're going to die now. <laughs> so it's almost like it's just like, you you you, you made me not think about cricket for five minutes. I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> well, it's like really weird. It's the only way they can get out of that situation. Exactly. The only, the if, if they don't get to that cricket game, Corinne, how are they going to know who won the match, match in Manchester? 
Tell me how. They have. They, they clearly don't have access to a radio, which is weird because it's 1938 and everybody had a fucking radio. Um, I'm sure one of those train cars had a radio in it. They could have gotten some updates somehow. Um, you it's, know, that kind of begs the question, why didn't they get off at one of those other stations to go like grab a newspaper real fast? Because... Because mm-hmm. plot. Because plot. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Maybe be- it wouldn't have been in English. And they it- wouldn't have been able to read And it. if we don't have Charles and Caldecott throughout this entire movie, then what are we doing? What are we well, really doing? they would doing? have jumped back on. They would have just like ran to go get a paper and jump back. Whatever. But how do they know that because that would be- plot. But, I mean, just because plot, you know, Bandrika and its neighboring areas may not have newspapers that are up to date on their latest cricket information Probably but anyway not. uh charters is shot in the hand <laughs> uh and thus thus starts a big old gunfight between them and the uh the, the nazi forces which is called the bandrika nazis uh who are who are convenient or, or just like like they're safely tucked away in the woods so it's kind of like a fight in the woods between the trees uh-huh. uh and the uh compartments of the train the part that they shot on location yeah and in a studio. and it looks beautiful for like a kind of a low it's 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 definitely not a, like a big budget situation but there's a lot of I, i'm amazed by the way this film is shot in terms of the train sequences and just like working inside that space and i think the most recent example we've seen of it in modern cinema has been murder on the orient express by kenneth Branagh. Yep. And he does a lot of similar stuff too, where he plays with the space really well. And Hitchcock knows how to do that. He's had to do it in many other situations with different locations before, with working in the confines of that one space. Mm-hmm. Um, and he very much keeps us inside that car. He rarely goes outside uh, to the location element of it all. Right. Um, there are enough like cuts. They must have used like B-roll of like the train traveling on the tracks, mm-hmm. you know, just to kind of get you through the movie and keep the illusion that they are on a train going. Yeah. But yeah, that's there's not a lot of stuff on location in this film. Yep. And during the fight, uh, Mrs. Froy reveals to Gilbert and Iris that um, she's in fact a spy. Yep. Because I don't know if you know this, she's a spy. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, she must deliver a message to the foreign office in Whitehall, and the message is a tune um, mm-hmm. that, that she had heard earlier from the balladeer. Who, who, by the way, we, we talk about like how he got murdered. Oh no, he gets just fucking strangled in the middle of the fucking courtyard. <laughs> that was R- R.I.P. Sexy balladeer. <laughs> you know, yeah. that was kind of a really morbid shot whenever like he's getting murdered and she's throwing the coin down and it just lands on the ground yeah like, he's never gonna pick it up yeah he's dead. hey hey it, did we figure out who strangled him would it have been the doctor I, paul lucas's character i don't think so because he doesn't uh, well we don't I see mean, him getting on the train so maybe it was him maybe and it was it him who pushed the flower pot onto iris's head i would think so because that seems. It seems like something Doctor Hartz would do. It seems like something he'd do. Right. I'd have to imagine he's a medical man. He knows what'll affect the human body. So choking, obviously, that gets someone out of the way. And trying to hit somebody with a brick and/or flower pot, we still don't know which one. Mm-hmm. Um, that obviously he knows what that'll do to the head. At the very least, to create the suspicion that she needs head injuries, uh, meets head head injury requirements. Right. Um, but so anyway. She, the the balladeer tune is the one that she's carrying to Whitehall, um, and, and thankfully Gilbert is a musician, so he can memorize the tune. Yep, at least so we think. Uh, and uh, well, he does initially, but, but, but yeah, but then 
But anyway, anyway, yeah. anyway, yeah. But uh, she, he memorized she that because she is going to make a break for it. Yeah, and she's like, "This will give us a better chance of the message getting back." Yep. And so she slips away into the forest. And there is a great shot where she kind of goes down into this little like divot ditch while they're shooting while they're at shooting her. Shooting at her. Shh. So you don't know. You know how in Hobbs and Shaw, Idris Selva says, I'm black Superman. Uh-huh. Dame May Witty is old Superman. <laughs> old Superwoman. Old Superwoman. Yes. Like, that's that's basically it. She she runs like a super soldier old lady. Like, I wonder if that was a stunt double. I, I if they sped up the footage or something. I think it's Captain America's grandma. I think that's what it is. Is Lady Britain or something like Lady that. Britain. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right on. Lady, but, yeah, that, Lady Britain that's coming a, to Marvel Studios 2025. <laughs> that's a great shot. Because I love how it's ambiguous on did she like it cuts away at the perfect moment. So you don't you don't know. You don't you whether don't she made it or not. Yeah. You, all you know is she got over a hill. She did. There's no guarantee that she's lived or not. And by that time, we're going back into the car. Cal Charters and Caldecott are in the middle of the fight. Mm-hmm. Um Mr. Todd Hunter is like, fuck this. I'm, I'm, a, I'm gonna throw out a flag of surrender, and then they shoot him. So, because, because I, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, Nazis, uh, Nazis are terrible people, and they'll just shoot you anyway. Um, but anyway, uh, so she, he dies, leaving Mrs. Todd Hunter uh, sad and depressed. Um, uh, and, but um, eventually, um, uh, Gilbert, th- and- Gilbert, and Caldecott. Uh, commandeer the locomotive and get it the fuck out of there. Yep. Um, which, you know, I didn't think I knew. I don't. I don't think I would have believed that Caldecott would know how to make a train go. Well, because the engineers are there. Yeah, yeah, initially yeah. to get the train running. Right. But then, man, the gun logic in this movie does not work <laughs> because the Nazis are able to hit a moving target mm-hmm. like thirty yards away. Through a train somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, these people are like crack shots, except for when they're not. The, apparently, the like, the magic bullets in this movie would baffle Kevin Costner and JFK. That is how baffling they are. But again, yeah, it's a movie it, because plot it, because because a movie because tension because because the magic of cinema, Corinne. <laughs> sure. The, again, machine gun leg Rose McGowan. I can't say it enough. Um, but then they're traveling backwards yeah, on the track. Traveling backwards. And, and the nun, um, well, actually, because the officer that they had, that Gilbert had knocked out with the chair wakes back up again. Yeah. And he grabs the gun that Charters has. And then the nun. has one round in it. Yeah. And the nun has Iris distract him. Yeah. While she goes back and flips the switch. Yeah. Because otherwise, nobody would be able to switch the tracks back. And she thankfully escapes, so she's not gonna. She she doesn't perish at the end of all this. No, she does get shot in the leg, though. Yeah, but she's jumping on the engine. She's like, oh. But 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 she's gonna make it. She's She's gonna gonna make it. She 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 was she was fighting for the right cause the entire time. Um, and so um, but anyway, so they get to the station safely. Um. Before we wrap up Gilbert and Iris, because they're in the final shots of this movie, we we, we will lament the loss of uh, Charters and Caldecott, who, um, uh, well, they're they're they, in the station. They, they're, at the they're, end. they're they're on time. They're they made it on time. But then what happened to that cricket match? Cricket match. It got flooded out and canceled. Motherfucker, man. Motherfucker. They did you know you know what I 
I think that Charles, uh, Charters and Caldecott, I keep calling them Charles and Caldecott. <laughs> Charles and Caldecott sounds like a cookie. Um, um, yeah. that, like a Pepperidge Farm cookie, Charles and Caldecott cookie. Um, but no, Charters and Caldecott, their, their match gets called off. I think they're living in a Coen Brothers movie secretly because it's almost like as if God's punishing them for them being selfish. <laughs> like, which, that happens in a lot of Coen Brothers movies where it's just like the hand of fate punishes all who are shitty. Um, and they're the only side characters that we actually get closure on. Yeah. Because Mrs. Todd Hunter. We yeah, we don't get any closure with her. her. Don't hear what happens to the nun. We don't really get any closure on uh, the Italians uh, other than them, you know, getting run off. But, you know. I mean, but yeah, th- I mean, they have been an important element of the journey in the much sense as they provided us lots of laughs and lots of discussions 80 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, um, but, uh, Iris is going to go off to go with her fiance, but then, but then she she's just to. too overwhelmed by the charm of Gilbert. Uh, and so they decide to go and to white. Underwhelmed at the prospect of marrying whoever that guy is. Oh, uh, uh, that that uh, that check chasing blue blood. Yeah. Um. So, uh, blue blooded check chaser is what her friend called him. Uh, yep. I'll just call him blue blood, uh, old blue. Um. And <laughs> he's a raptor. She was yes. gonna marry a raptor. <laughs> yep. Um. I would watch that movie. Yeah. Oh, Alfred oh. Hitchcock's Jurassic World. <laughs> Margaret Walkwood and a raptor make out. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I never thought I'd say that CGI needed a more important mission, but now we have an answer. Yes. Um, but anyway, they decide to go to the foreign office, but Gilbert can't remember the tune. So... <laughs> Because he's, the most, he's in love now. The, yeah, he, so I think the real lesson but of so, movie wait, is so, don't fall in love and kiss somebody because then you will remember everything important you need to know. Wait, so wait, love doesn't make you blind to the point where you forget simple notes, does it? Like, was Apparently. he that? How is he that distracted? It. I, I mean, it was only a few hours have you ago. Seen Margaret Lockwood. <laughs> I mean, she is. I'd be distracted. She is very gorgeous, and I. I, I mean, I'm taken aback by it. Um, Gilbert can't remember the tomb, but thankfully, as they go in the doors to speak to uh, the the members of the foreign office, who's there but Dame May Woody, the most badass spy on the planet, who evaded the 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 freaking the faux Nazis, the, the faux Nazis <laughs> by running up a goddamn hill to then play on a fucking peony <laughs> and she go beat them there. You know what? It, the the How o- did she beat them there. The only I'm not one for special editioning things like George Lucas is, but I would totally special edition this where we dub the line in "What took you so long, bitches?" and then the credits go <laughs> up. <laughs> Of all the characters who got spin-off movies from yeah. this one, oh, why was oh, it? Oh, why then, wasn't it Miss Freud? Oh, and then she gets she's got to have a badass like rap song to close out her arc. I basically want to turn Dame May Woody into a <laughs> fa- oh my gosh remake. The lady vanishes with Helen Mirren, and then she gets that line at the end of the movie. That would be I I think we got a I think we got a plan to pitch something to Hollywood here. Yeah, so um, suck it, James Bond. <laughs> Grandma did your job better than you did. <laughs> do, 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 do. Um, so thus wraps up The Lady Vanishes, a uh, interesting film about the different perceptions and uh, ways we see a story and how, um, you know, we can get thrown off the trail and then brought back into it very easily. We're led on an emotional roller coaster as a result. Um, the um, 
yeah. And as much as I was kind of frustrated with that prologue mm-hmm. the first time around um, this week, it does build up the tension. It does help you to get to know all the characters. I, again, think they spend a little too much time with Charters and Caldecott, but... You know, I guess you have to have a little bit of comic relief in a movie. Speaking as dramatic of as this. speaking of those two, we're not done with them yet nope. because they proved so popular. Which, of course, they did. Because I, like I said, I like them. I was making fun of them throughout this entire thing. I love them though. I think they're fun. Um, they are so popular that um, Anglo Amalgamated Film Distributors uh, released a film called Crooks Tour in 1941, directed by John Baxter. Uh, and it starred Naughton Wayne and Basil Radford as Charters and Caldecott. Um, the, I want to read you the plot. Now, Corinne and I have not seen the film, but it is a supplement on the Criterion film. Yep. And, and they were also in Night Train to Munich mm-hmm. in 1940, also starring Margaret Lockwood. Yep. So they And Millions Like Us in 1943. Yep. We want to read you the plot for Crook's Tour because it's the one that's the most readily available. Which those two movies I just mentioned were also written by Sidney J- Juliet and yep. Frank Lounder. Yep. I, sorry, I can't speak. The, the writers of The Lady Vanishes. Yes, yeah. the it's, same writers of The Lady Vanishes. It's 9.30 here in Denver. We're tired. Um, <laughs> but the plot of Crook's Tour, which you can find, and we're going to watch this, and at some point we will, I'm sure we will do a supplemental podcast to even this episode where we review Crook's Tour and find out how non-sequels to non-Hitchcock things <laughs> like don't line up. But anyway, the plot is Charters and Caldecott are touring the Middle East. Uh, right off the bat, I don't want to know what they're doing there. I, I, I really don't trust them at this point. Um, after visiting Saudi Arabia, they find themselves in Baghdad, where they are mistaken by a group of German spies for the messengers who are to carry a song record by the uh, song recorded by beautiful singer La Paramo, played by Greta Grint. Uh, Greta Gint, uh, which contains secret instructions of the German intelligence. Realizing their error, the German spies follow Charters and Caldecott to Istanbul and Budapest, trying to eliminate them and retrieve the record. So, it's... So it's kind of like the lady vanishes, but just... But but, uh, but meets Madagascar three. It's like Pineapple Express, except ex- instead of having to flee drug dealers, they're fleeing Nazis. So they stumble upon some shit, essentially. Like I think the only difference is that neither Charters or Caldecott is going to be Seth Rogen hanging outside of Gary Cole's house smoking weed. Um. So yeah, we've got to watch this movie and review it at some point. Um. Uh. And see what the lady vanishes cinematic universe could have been um you know what would there have been you know a nick would dame may Woody have asked everybody to join the vanishing troop which would be their firm version of the avengers that would um, be awesome yeah i i think it would be it'd be astounding and those actors they do have great chemistry together this was the first of i think 11 films that they did mm-hmm. not all charters and caldecott ones but um, they were just a team that, right. that worked well together. They were a team that worked well together. Some of the films they did were playing these same characters, but other ones were just different characters yeah. that they were just romancing, yeah. as you said. Yeah, they were they were the Apatow gang of their era, by which I mean just those two. <laughs> uh, the British. You know what? They were the Simon Pegg and Nick Frost of yes, the day. Yes, very much so. They are the Simon yeah. Pegg and Nick Frost. They, they to- I totally get it now. 
I totally get where Edgar Wright gets his ideas from now. It's all Abbott from and Costello kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's all Charles and Caldecott for Edgar Wright. But <laughs> it's, it's got to be. That's how Shaun of the Dead came about, guys. Charles and Caldecott. Charles they're so and, very British. Yeah, they're so very British. Um, but so anyway, that wraps up the Lady Vanishes. Um, do you have any final thoughts on the film and um, how it holds up today, based off of the modern purview? Like, basically, if if we were doing catching the classics classics with Corinne, we'd be at the part of the segment now where you give the review mm-hmm. and kind of like give your thoughts about how it works for you today. So, would you recommend it? What would be the star rating and what works about it today? Oh yeah, I definitely recommend it. Um especially having watched it twice this week, once with the commentary, watching most of the bonus features. Obviously, I didn't watch Crooks Tour, mm-hmm. but everything else. Um, it really helped me dive into the experience. So it wasn't, you know, with when I do actual catching the classics, I don't watch, like, sometimes I don't have that available where, where I have the option to watch the special features. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to, I like for a movie to just kind of stand on its own merit. Right. But because I was doing this with you, I dived in further. Um, and that really helped me to kind of understand the context of like where Alfred Hitchcock was in his career, mm-hmm. how this exact story came about, the different processes that it went through from being an adaptation from a novel, etc. Um, but I mean, I had a lot of fun with this movie. Like I said, I didn't remember it quite as well as I thought I did. I I remember more of like the conspiracy and the question of, you know, is she a reliable point of view character or mm-hmm. not right was the lady really ever there you know much kind of like terror at twenty thousand feet if you've ever seen that twilight zone episode, yeah, 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 which yeah, i yeah, actually yeah. rewatched today because i was like ah lady Vance, I'll, I'll, I'll watch this although be honest margaret lockwood's a lot more fun to look at than bill shatner and if we're talking about beauty like i know shatner thinks he's beautiful but oh and he looks good in that episode yeah but let's face it margaret lockwood's a lot more yes. She's a lot more sexy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and likable and lovable. Yes. And and I and I'm fairly sure Margaret Lockwood's not going to start saying con at the end of her sentences. So. <laughs> but I mean, there's definitely still like a, a mystery going on of, you know, even if you know that she was taken, she was really there and she is now vanished. Yeah. There's still the question of why is she vanished? Who's in on it? Mm-hmm. Why are they doing it? And obviously the movie answers all those. Yeah. But of course you, there's still this tension and suspense with you, the audience the whole time, because you have no idea what the hell is going on until it, the end. In, in in a way, I feel like it's one of the, it's one of the many Hitchcock films from this period that are the most raw in terms of the things he brings to a film um, where they get more refined as they go to the American period where you have, um, uh, different aspects, whether it's the the point of view, the MacGuffin, um, the different points of intrigue, the way he treats his female characters, and all that. Like some of the, the the negatives and the positives are both there, but sure. this is stuff as it, at its most raw, where it's almost unfiltered to a degree. And because it is in Britain, there is an element that they can go into further that they're not going to do in the U S and it's interesting to know that the lady vanishes, which by the way, when it was, when it was released, it was well received Mm -hmm. and it, uh, played in America and New York played very well. Even communist papers gave it a good view. Yep, exactly. So, you know, go figure. People like this movie. It's weird that it variety, I think was the one that didn't. Yeah. Well, what do they know? They're only the, the showbiz <laughs> newspaper, I guess. <laughs> that that critic just didn't like a film. But anyway, uh, 
but no, they um that the it's amazing. Sorry that that the uh, that the film would not uh, been able to be made under those same circumstances, especially with the Charters and Caldecott uh, uh, elements that they have in their friendship. Uh, and yet it was released and received rather well in the United States. And then it's a film that captures so much attention for Hitchcock that Hollywood can't ignore him and they get his ass over to Hollywood. Um, unfortunately, his career pretty much. Un- unfortunately, he has to work with a guy who, I don't know if you know this, was a f- in, a- addicted to amphetamines. Uh, David O. Selznick. D- 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 well. <laughs> Actually, most of them were, but I, yeah. I I like to point that out because David O. Selznick. Uh, I talked about this in the last episode, but he wanted Rebecca to end with a uh, the smoke of the fire at um, uh, the De Winter Mansion rising up and forming a giant R. That's the work of a moron. And then Hitchcock, thankfully, didn't have to do that because someone told Selznick to calm the fuck down. So, um, like, you know, here, go to right. bed, you know? So, um, but anyway. But, yeah, something that they mentioned in the Hitchcock interview with that French guy, mm-hmm. um, whose name I can't remember, is he, I, this is apparently the French guy's favorite movie of Hitchcock's. Truffaut's. Truffaut, sure. Yeah. That guy, Truffles. French, <laughs> gosh. Truffles. Um, was asking Hitchcock, like, so where, kind of where this fell for him in his career. Mm-hmm. And Hitchcock explains that the British films, he was kind of refining more of the technical aspects mm-hmm. and kind of had that down. But then when he went to America, he was able to refine the ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why, especially for American audiences, obviously we're a little biased because these are bigger names for us. But I think that that's another reason why the um, his American films stick more with us. Yeah, is because they're kind of bigger, grander things, and not just a little kind of murder—not murder, mystery on a train. And the re- and the results of a lot of test runs in a whole other er- time and place in the world. Yes. Um, and those Truffaut interviews are very helpful if you can read the full book Hitchcock Truffaut. They have. It has plenty of information on every single one of his films and how it breaks it breaks down scenes frame by frame by frame and shows you how things are done. Um, and, yeah, you can listen to the audio interview version of that on the Criterion Collection. Yes, so, But, Corinne, do you have anything you want to uh, plug before you leave us today in this uh, wonderful environment that you've set for us? <laughs> um, well, I just want to say again that I really enjoy this movie. Uh, if I had to give it a rating, I'd probably give it at least four out of five stars, maybe four and a half. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot I dislike about it. Yeah. I'd have to think about it a little harder, but yeah, it's, it's a great movie and it's definitely worth watching. Uh, but, um, yeah, I just want to plug real nerds podcast, <laughs> um, where every week more or less, uh, the nerds gratefully play my little clips of whatever <laughs> classic movie I've reviewed. Yep. And also check out realnerdspodcast.com mm-hmm. where I have two article series going right now, Catching the Classics and Showtime, which is just kind of random shit. <laughs> random movie and TV shit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so everybody go check out that website. Cool. And as always for the Shamley Silhouette, uh, we are on realnerdspodcast.com. Uh, we are on the Real Nerds podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes. Um, and 
we will be working on trying to fix the consistency of the podcast as time goes on. Um, for the next episode, uh, we don't know what we're going to do yet because this is the last of the ones I pre-recorded. So we may even end up having a bit of a hiatus after that. So, but, uh, any chance we can get to do the Shamley silhouette, we appreciate it. So, uh, Corinne, I wanted to thank you for coming on to the show and I really appreciate you coming down and donating your time to talk about the lady vanishes. Sure. Thank you, Zach. And best of luck on the rest of the silhouette. Yeah. We will do our best here at the Shamley silhouette, but until next time, good night. Thank you.